<clears throat> Luke 24, we'll look at verses 44 to 49 today. As many of you know, the traditional church calendar goes through the life of Jesus in one year, from Advent to Christmas, to Lent, to Good Friday, to Easter Sunday, to Ascension, to Pentecost, goes through the uh, gospel story in one year. It's a wonderful way to keep uh, the life of Jesus before us, frankly. But to do that, everything has to be compressed, of course, because Jesus' earthly ministry was actually three years. So everything is compressed, except it seems the Easter season. For from the time Jesus rose from the dead until he ascended to the Father was 40 days. And from our celebration of Jesus' resurrection to, from the dead to our celebration of his ascension is 40 days. That's a real-time thing. I mention this because, uh, just to impress upon you, that if Jesus had really risen from the dead on the day we celebrated his resurrection, the 5th of April, two weeks ago, he would still be moving around in the world, appearing to his disciples, teaching here and there, different ones, different groups, and would continue that for about another month. As we saw last week, these are not myths. These things are historical events that happened in real time and space. So this morning, I want us to go back to Luke 24, where we were last week. But may I suggest that as we look at the next set of verses beyond where we, what we talked about last week, I think what we have is not just an account of what went on in the upper room that night, the, the, the Easter night, but I think here we have a summary of the instruction which Jesus began to give on Easter Sunday and continued to give until he ascended to the Father for the, 40 days later. As, as we look at other post-Easter uh, occurrences in, in the next few weeks, I think you'll see that some of these same, same things keep coming up again. Let me read it, verses 44 to 49. Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me and the law of Moses, and the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. There will end our reading. This passage seems to boil it down to two things that Jesus wants his disciples and wants us to know this morning from this text. The first is this, that the scriptures unfold the gospel of Christ. What's the Bible about? Well, the scriptures unfold the gospel of Christ. These days, I think Christians have kind of a strange view of what's going on in the Bible. While the world thinks the Bible is basically irrelevant, many Christians believe it tells us everything we need to know. Now, I haven't found that to be true. There are lots of things that I wish I knew that I can't find anything about in the Bible. I wish I knew all the hows and, 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 and winds of creation. I wish I knew when the dinosaurs lived and why they went extinct. I wish I knew how the various races of humans got so different. I wish I knew how God performed miracles like the Bible records. I wish I knew how God could possibly raise dead bodies 
after they've already decayed and been destroyed. I wish I knew why Jesus chose Judas when he knew he was going to betray him. I wish I knew how the Old Testament law ought to be reflected in our politics. In fact, I wish I knew what God's choice of politics would be for us. Oh, the list is endless, isn't it? But so many people feel like, wouldn't it be great if we had a Bible with a subject index? Better yet, maybe we could have a Google search built in. Google financial success, and the Bible will tell us where to put our money. Or or, or Google resurrection, the Bible will give us a, a complete description of how that happened. Or Google my happy marriage, and the Bible will print out a, a, a list of things that you need to do. That's actually the kind of Bible that many people think we ought to have. And frankly, in the day of electronic wizardry, there are a lot of attempts to come to just that kind of thing. But folks, the Bible isn't like that. God does not intend to give us a how-to manual for everything we need to know about life. It's just not true. Instead, he gives us stories and songs and some mysterious writings and proverbs and recounts history, some of it meaningless, seemingly meaningless history. But all those things serve one great purpose which Jesus explains to his disciples here and is explained to us in this text. The scriptures disclose how the gospel of God's grace has appeared in Jesus. So what exactly is the gospel? Well, that's a big question. You could spend months answering that. But Paul gives us a short to the point definition in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand, by this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. And what is that? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. There it is in a nutshell. Christ died, was buried, and rose the third day. That's the gospel according to the scriptures. And that gospel unfolded in the scriptures is what Jesus taught his apostles and other disciples in those days between his resurrection and his ascension. He taught them how everything in the Bible, which for them was only the Old Testament at that time, he taught them how everything in the Bible spoke of him and how all of those things must be fulfilled And that the Bible specifically foretold his death and resurrection. Now, folks, when we study the Bible, that's what we must be looking for. That's what God wants us to see there. Of course, you won't find the gospel narrative written back in the Old Testament. It hadn't happened yet. But the heart of the gospel is still there in pictures and shadows and predictions, and we need to be listening for it. Let me mention a few examples of how the gospel is revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? God shed the blood of of an animal and with the skin made clothes to cover their shame. That's the gospel. Jesus dying to cover our shame the innocent sacrifice. 
Then God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the servant while he himself uh, was being wounded. That's the gospel. Jesus, the virgin-born son of the woman, defeated Satan on the cross through his own suffering. Later in Genesis 6, God told Noah to build an ark to save his family from the coming judgment on the world. That's the gospel. Peter tells us the ark was a picture of Christ Jesus who saves from judgment all who are in him. Later in Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham and and his seed, his son, to bless the whole world through him. That's a promise of the gospel. Paul tells us that that seed, that son of Abraham, is Christ Jesus, who is now bringing the blessing of salvation to the whole world. Years later, God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And Abraham set out to do it. But God provided a substitute in the ram that they found caught in the thicket. Now there's the gospel again. In fact, it's a double picture of Jesus. He is the son whom the father did actually sacrifice on the cross. And he is the substitute which God provided in order that Isaac and we might go free. Then in Exodus, when the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, God delivered them. On the night of the judgment, God told his people to kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost over the house. And all those inside the house would be saved when judgment came. That's the gospel again. Jesus is the Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5 tells us, by whose blood we are covered and saved and delivered. You see, Jesus' work of salvation is foreshadowed everywhere in the scriptures. We've only picked a few examples, and we're only up into Exodus, the second book. We haven't even mentioned the man in the wilderness and the water from the rock, the imagery of the tabernacle and temple, the Shekinah glory and the pillar of cloud and fire, the inheritance of the promised land conquered by a man named Joshua, that's the Hebrew spelling of Jesus, the inheritance uh, uh, promises to David, the multiple references of the Messiah in the Psalms and the prophecies of Isaiah and Hosea and Daniel and Zechariah and others. Make no mistake, the scriptures unfold the gospel of grace appearing in Jesus. And that's what the risen Savior wants us to understand. So this morning I challenge you. Don't be content until you're seeing the gospel disclosed in the scripture. Learning Bible stories is a great beginning. But what is God, how's God teaching us the gospel in those accounts? Understanding the law is only a start. God gave that law to drive us to Jesus. Even studying prophecy is useless until you see that it's fulfillment, that it finds all finds fulfillment in the saving work of Jesus. Do not be content. Until in your study, you're reading the scriptures, you're understanding the gospel. I had a classmate in the seminary. I think I've told you about him before. His name is um, um, Rich Gantz. Grew up an Orthodox Jew. Came to know the, the Savior after he was a practicing clinical psych- psychologist. Unbelieving, actually. So while the rest of us, then he came to seminary, while the rest of us were trying to learn uh, the, the Hebrew alphabet, he was um, 
having his devotions in his Hebrew Bible. It was interesting to hear him talk about it. He's, he had memorized and studied the Hebrew Bible. He had studied the, the Hebrew Bible his whole life. He was uh, quite conversant in the Hebrew Bible. But he said when he came to know Christ, he saw Christ on every page. It was there all the time, but he had no eyes to see it. And I fear that we can grow up on Bible stories and grow up on theology lessons and yet read through messianic prophecies and not see Jesus there. Jesus in these days, between his resurrection and his ascension, is teaching them, it's all about me, guys. And it's all about the grace of the gospel that's appeared in your day. Well, that's the first thing. The second thing is this. Jesus wants us to understand that God intends to redeem his world. God intends to redeem his world. Can you imagine, uh, some of you do build things for a living. Can you imagine a building project where workers show up day after day and they do the same kinds of tasks and the same kind of tools and they speak in the same kinds of terms, but as you watch this activity going on, you realize these guys are not building according to the same set of plans. They're not trying to build the same thing here. Can you imagine the chaos? Can you imagine the confusion? That problem of differing agendas is a colossal issue in Christ's church today. Among people quoting the same Bible, professing the same faith, meeting this morning for worship, singing the same songs, hearing sermons from pulpits, meeting in buildings with steeples on the top or whatever, in all of that there's vastly different agendas being pursued. Something God's agenda is simply to make us all happy and prosperous. That's popular, you know. We all want to be happy and prosperous. Something, no, God's agenda is the freeing of the oppressed, whatever it takes, Legal or not legal, whatever it takes, free the oppressed. Something God is all about feeding the poor. That's it, just feeding the poor. Something God's agenda is the success of modern Israel. So everything that happens in the world needs to be judged by the success of modern Israel. Something God's concern is to promote American exceptionalism. You'll hear some candidates speak of that quite a bit in the next months. There's no end to the differing, competing agendas going on in churches. Well, apparently Jesus foresaw this coming. For in this text, Jesus makes it clear that God's agenda is to redeem his world. Jesus says that in verse 47, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. What are repentance and forgiveness? That's God's redemptive work in the world. Make no mistake, God's redemption is desperately needed for alienation destroys this world at every level. Alienation between God and us. 
alienation between the races, alienation between cultures, alienation between generations, alienation between husbands and wives, alienation between parents and children, alienation in families, alienation from people with every conceivable different point of view. So what's the answer to all these unresolved problems? The answer is repentance and forgiveness, which brings about reconciliation. People who are sinning against God or one another need to repent, turn around, go a different direction, have a change of heart and action. But of course, even if you repent, radically change your direction, you can't undo all the harm that's been done. So someone has to forgive, wipe the slate clean without getting your pound of flesh. Unfortunately, we don't seem to be able to do those things, do we? Even when we wish we could make things right, we wish we could repent and forgive, we trample on our own efforts before they ever get off the ground. But there's good news, folks. God grants repentance. He is able to change the heart, something we can't even begin to do, can't even do for ourselves. He grants the grace of repentance because Jesus has defeated the power of sin that keeps on destroying us. But there's even more. Because Jesus paid the penalty for sin, God forgives. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He removes the guilt from us as far as the east is from the west. He so forgives us that he remembers our sin no more. He doesn't use our sins against us. In short, God redeems us reconciles us to himself, reclaims us, renews us, recreates us as part of a new creation in Christ Jesus. And what God does in us personally, he intends to do in the whole world. This redemption is not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Americans. It's not just for the middle class. This gospel of redemption is for people of all nations. God's agenda is to redeem his world. That's always been God's agenda. From the time sin entered his creation, he was determined to reclaim it. The prophecies of Messiah's coming were prophecies of a deliverer. Oh, 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 people took it and made that into a political hope. But God was coming to deliver the world from its its alienation uh, to him, to, to redeem the world. When Jesus' coming was announced, this was God's agenda. Name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. This night, a Savior has been born. He's coming to redeem his world. When Jesus began his ministry, he said, this is what I came to do. I have come to give my life a ransom for many. He came to redeem us, to reclaim his world. With many signs and wonders, he he pursued the Father's purposes. He drove out demons. He released those who were captive to deformities and diseases. He spoke peace to those who knew only despair. And he voluntarily went to the cross to pay our debt of sin. As the Apostle Paul sums it up, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting men's sins against them. Can you imagine? God coming to redeem 
his rebellious world. That's the agenda Jesus has for his church. In verse 48, he says, you will be witnesses of this. We're not called to be spectators. We're not called to be naysayers. We're not called to be critics. We're called to be witnesses, to tell what we know of the work of Jesus, who suffered and died and rose from the dead. We're to be witnesses who who model repentance from our own sin by the grace of God and forgiveness that extends that grace that we have received to others who don't deserve it any more than we deserved it. Sounds like an impossible task, doesn't it? Yes, it is. But in verse 48, Jesus promised to send his spirit to empower us. Not to empower us to have financial success. Not to empower us to build our own kingdom and lord it over others. But to empower us to be faithful witnesses. Empower us to repent. Empower us to forgive. For that is still God's agenda. To redeem his world. So I ask you. And I ask myself. Is that really our agenda? Is that something we care about? Once Jesus said to his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I say? In a similar way, we can't claim to know and serve the Lord Jesus if we're not pursuing his agenda of redeeming his world. It's easy to sit in church every Sunday or stand up and preach every Sunday and not really care about this. I'd be so interested in mission works and church plants that we hear about. I'd be so interested in giving financial reports to financial uh, uh, resources and support to those endeavors. Maybe never think to actually pray for the success of those things. Certainly not willing to speak up and be a witness ourselves. But folks, if we're not willing to pursue God's stated agenda for his people, In what sense can we call him Lord? Well, God's agenda is to redeem this world. For three years, Jesus preached and taught his disciples, but they failed to understand. So after his resurrection, when his work had been completed now, he spent another 40 days teaching those same people how all these things had come together how all the promises had been fulfilled, what all of this meant, what God's agenda was, what was happening, what what they were to be about. First, he taught them that the point of the scriptures was to unfold the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. He told them in verse 44 how everything must be fulfilled that was written about him throughout the whole scripture, most notably that he should suffer and, and, and die and the third day be raised from the dead. And then Jesus made sure that they understood that God intends to redeem this world. Jesus knew the Father's plan from the beginning. He came to do nothing and say nothing except what the Father did and said to absolutely make the Father's agenda his own. And here in our text, he promises to send his Spirit that we might continue to do that work, to continue to all the nations, to continue in his power, to continue until he returns and the redemption is complete. This morning, I call you to have the mind of Christ, to see as he sees, to care about his concerns. Amen. Let's pray. 
Well, Father, we wish we could have been there to hear Jesus talk and see him alive from the grave. And yet we have to admit you've given us a lot of evidence. You've given us eyewitness testimonies. And not only that, you've given us several explanations of what it was that he was teaching his disciples. So, Lord, may we not get all caught up in what we wish we had seen, but may we get caught up in listening to the testimony that you've given us and preserved for us. May we hear the point of the scriptures, the gospel of Christ. May we hear the point of your agenda for the ages to reclaim what was lost in the fall, to bring us to glory. And may our lives be given to that. In whatever place you put us, in whatever kind of vocation you call us, may our real great agenda be to see the redemption, the reconciliation that comes in Jesus extended to the whole world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.